Our scripture reading this morning is from the Hebrew scriptures, the book of Ruth. During the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A man and his wife and two sons went from Bethlehem of Judah to dwell in the territory of Moab. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the territory of Moab and settled there. But Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Then only she was left along with her two sons. They took wives for themselves, Moabite women. The name of the first was Orpah, and the name of the second was Ruth. And they lived there for about 10 years. But both of the sons, Malan and Chilion, also died. Only the woman was left without her two children and without her husband. Then she arose along with her daughters-in-law to return from the field of Moab because while there in the territory of Moab, she had heard that the Lord had paid attention to his people by providing food for them. She left the place where they had been and her two daughters-in-law went with her. They went along the road to return to the land of Judah. Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go, turn back, each of you, to the household of your mother. May the Lord deal faithfully with you, just as you have done with the dead and with me. May the Lord provide for you so that you may find security, each woman in the household of her husband. Then she kissed them. And they lifted up their voices and wept. But they replied to her, no, instead we will return with you to your people. Naomi replied, turn back my daughters. Why would you go with me? Will there again be sons in my womb that they would be husbands for you? Turn back my daughters, go. I am too old for a husband. If I were to say that I have hope, even if I had a husband tonight, and even more, if I were to bear sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you refrain from having a husband? No, my daughters. This is more bitter for me than for you, since the Lord's will has come out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth stayed with her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law is returning to her people and to her gods. Turn back after your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to abandon you to turn back from following after you. 
Wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do this to me and more, so even if death separates me from you. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her about it. The word of God for the people of God. Good morning, friends. It is a pleasure and an honor to be with you once again this morning. Um, my name is Reverend Ashley T. Tara Burt, pronoun she, hers, and I am here in New York City. Um, happy to be joining you. Um, honored to be here uh, when my friend Bruce cannot. I hope that he heals uh, quickly, but I am happy to be able to bring the word to you all today. And so I invite us just to go into a moment of silence before hearing our sermon for today. There's a saying that I grew up hearing a lot. Making a way out of no way. I don't know exactly when folks started using it, but I always heard it uh, from various family members when talking about the trials and tribulations that African-Americans have faced in this country. And it was supposed to make me proud of my heritage for I am descended from people who made the impossible possible. In fact, a few years ago, I had the pleasure of spending a few days at the National Museum of African American History and Culture, and they actually had a whole exhibit named Making a Way Out of No Way. Whether it be slavery, Jim Crow, redlining, segregation, police brutality, the school to prison pipeline, or just the many, many obstacles that have existed, Black Americans have managed to find our way through times of darkness and despair so that not only have we survived, we have thrived. Now, of course, Black people aren't the only ones who have had to find ways to survive and thrive in this world, or in this country even. We know that Native Americans have faced everything from deception to disease, from genocide to land theft, from invisibilization to the epidemic of assault and murder that continues to this day. We know Latinx folks have dealt with bias, stereotypes, questions about their citizenship and intentions, and of course the constant villainization. Asians have dealt and are still dealing with scapegoating, blame, invisibilization, harassment, increased violence. Women of all types and backgrounds have been treated like second-class citizens, constantly being denied safety, respect, equal pay, opportunity, even rights. And if it's a woman of color, the difficulties grow exponentially. 
gay, lesbian, and bisexual people have been denied rights and respect. Uh, trans, non-binary, and intersex people have to fight to simply be considered people. Uh, refugees, asylum seekers, uh, are still spoken of using terms that we use for roaches and rodents. Uh, Muslims are still, unfortunately, getting labeled in terms of, of terrorism or as, as backwards. Uh, even our Jewish friends are still facing constant anti-Semitism. The list just keeps going on. And that's not even taking into account our personal struggles. Uh, maybe you haven't faced systemic oppression, but that doesn't mean life is easy. You know that. Mental health issues and depression can weigh on us and make life extra difficult. Physical issues bring frustrating and unforeseen challenges to each day. Financial woes sit heavy on our hearts. Stress is a burden that feels too hard to bear. We are living in a time of climate crises. We are living in a time of political crises. And of course, we are still living in a pandemic. <sighs> Worrying about our friends, our family, pastors, our country. It can feel like a full-time job. My point is, every single one of us has faced, or is facing, a situation, systemic or personal, or both, in which maybe there feels like there's no way to get around it. But the saying isn't, there's no way. It's making a way out of no way. And if scripture teaches us anything, it's that we are part of a faith, of a tradition, of a long line of connected people who have somehow found a way, which means that we can too. When the disciples no longer had Jesus on earth to guide them, they made a way. When the Israelites had to wander through the desert, they literally made a way. And as our text shows us today, when there was no way, Ruth and Naomi made their own way. And they did that by coming together. Let me set the stage for you. The book before Ruth is the book of Judges. And the last words in the book of Judges are, in those days, there was no king of Israel and all the people did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, it was everyone for themselves. The end of the book of Judges is harsh and violent. So when the book of Ruth begins with, in the days when judges ruled, we know that things have not been well. Adding on to that, the town of Bethlehem, which literally means house of bread, is dealing with a famine. The house of bread has no bread. The text doesn't indicate that the famine is supposed to be a punishment for anything that happened in judges, or quite frankly, anything else that's happening at the time of our story. It's just one of those things that's happening. So our story starts with times that are so harsh that a man, Elimelech, has to move his family, his wife, his two sons, their wives, 
to the land of Moab. Now right there, things seem to already be in a place of hopelessness. But consider his name. Elimelech. The pronunciation Elimelech sounds like the Hebrew words for my God is king. His name alone is a reminder that in the days when there was no king, there was still God. Now things in Moab didn't exactly turn out how the family expected. Elimelech dies and then his sons, Melan and Chilean, uh, names that happen to sound like the words for sickness and consumption, they pass away a decade later. What's more, they pass away before bearing any children, specifically sons. By verse 5, we have Naomi, wife of Elimelech, with two daughter-in-laws, no husbands, no sons, no grandchildren. And this is a world in which men were necessary for survival. They were the ones with the money, potentially with land, with livestock, and with all the social power. Male children could grow up to obtain said power, yet by verse 6, all of the men mentioned at the start of the story are gone. In short, we have three widows with the hardships of their past and a high likelihood of hardship in their futures. There aren't a lot of options left for Naomi here. In the Bible, there are two types of widows that normally show up. The named widows usually have lost their husbands, but not connection to money or family or some other asset. The unnamed widows, well, they usually have no assets, no finances, no social clout, nothing. They are associated with poverty, mourning, and desolation. So when scripture tells us things like look after the widows and the poor, this is who they mean. Ruth and Orpah, the two daughter-in-laws, they had families to go back to, even when the text makes no mention of fathers. There were people who could take care of them and look after them, and there was even still potential for new husbands. Naomi, on the other hand, she didn't have any family left. She didn't have the possibility of finding a new husband, and she certainly wasn't going to have any new children, let alone sons. She knows that her fate lies more with the unnamed widows, those who beg in poverty. And so she sees no value in herself, going as far as to tell her daughter-in-laws, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. She's so lacking in hope she's considering herself already dead. <sighs> Did I mention Naomi's name means pleasantness? The words halak and sub, or to go and to return, come up seven times and eight times in this passage, respectively. This movement from Judah to Moab and back to Judah, from fullness to emptiness of family and opportunity, is vital to this story. Which makes it all the more ironic when both Orpah and Ruth declare that they're not going anywhere. They want to stay with Naomi, and Naomi, of course, doesn't want that. She knows the road ahead will be hard, 
and she's no intention of bringing either of these women along for the ride. They have potential, she thinks. God may look kindly upon them and bless them in ways that she feels she cannot be blessed. She feels as if she has no worth of her own, to the point that the only value she can imagine having for these women is if she herself could bear sons, which would still be ridiculous because, what, are they supposed to wait for her sons to grow up so they can marry them? No. There's no way possible for them to stay together, she thinks. So once again, she sends them off. And Orba listens. And that's not a good thing or a bad thing, necessarily. She was told what to do, and she did it. What happens next? We simply don't know. Ruth, however, has another idea. Rather than return home to the safety of her family and seek her luck finding another man, she announces that she'd rather breathe it out with Naomi. And pretty famously, she says, do not ask me to abandon you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do this and so to me and more as well if death ever parts me from you. And even if you aren't all that familiar with the book of Ruth, parts of this might sound familiar to you as this promise is often used during Christian weddings. And given what we know about this story so far, that might seem a little strange, but the implication here is that Ruth is seeking a bond at least as strong as marriage. The text says that Ruth clung to Naomi, with the root word here being the That same word is used in Genesis 2.24 and talking about a man leaving his father and mother to be joined to his wife. And it's also used in Deuteronomy 13.4 when it says that we should serve and cling to God. There is a strength and power to the connection that she seeks, one so strong that she's willing to risk it all and give up her whole life for a new yet uncertain possibility. Consider Ruth's speech to Naomi's many speeches. There are words of, of human loyalty and respect, of wanting to stick together in the midst of chaos and tragedy and do something that folks at that time simply did not do. Her words aren't as eloquent or as logical or poetic as Naomi's, and her proposition doesn't necessarily make sense to Naomi, but in the end, she wins out. Naomi agrees to stick together, not necessarily because she's swayed by Ruth's debating skills, or even because she totally understands how them sticking together could actually be helpful, but because she sees Ruth's determination. In a time of hopelessness and uncertainty, determination matters. It's what opens the door for the rest of the action in that story the seeking of a new husband, finding Boaz, and ultimately giving birth to a line of people that leads to a king.
David. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not some fairy tale. But in hearing this story and seeing how Ruth and Naomi came together and knowing that they made it through, I understand a little better how my ancestors made it through. In a time in which they had no power, no money, no clout, they did have one thing, and, and that will always be valuable. It will be invaluable, and that is each other. They clung to each other like Ruth clung to Naomi, and if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be here today. If it wasn't for the clinging that so many folks throughout history have done, most of us wouldn't be here today. People were able, Ruth and Naomi, were able to make a way out of no way because they had each other. Even if they didn't know what it meant for the future. Even if they didn't feel like they had power as individuals. Even if everything else around them felt like it was falling apart. Ruth knew that they were stronger together, and so she reached out and she stayed. Her name, by the way, it means companion. And when she decided to stay, when she decided that she wanted to be a companion to Naomi, Naomi considered that even if she didn't understand it, Ruth might have a point. And she reached back. They were stronger together. We are stronger together. Whether we're dealing with health or financial crisis, whether we're worn down from tragedy after tragedy, whether discrimination has reared its head one too many times, whether we're waiting in nervousness and exhaustion, whether we're just sick and tired of being sick and tired, we can face things together. We can lift each other up and cling to each other. We can care for each other and be gentle with one another. We can check in and reach out, and when we see someone reaching out to us, we can be brave and reach right back. We can make ways out of no way. We can make it through all we are facing together. And when we do that, we will follow in the great tradition of making our way down the road of hope. Amen. Friends, I invite you to join me in prayer at this time. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we ask you to unite us together to help us remember that this unity of the people of God must be manifested and be active in a variety of ways. God, we ask that you help us love one another, 
that you help us experience, practice, and pursue our community with one another. And that you help us to remember that through your love and your call, that we are obligated to give ourselves willingly and joyfully so that we may be of benefit and blessing to one another. In your holy name, amen.